The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, praise God for his word. So uh, this week we're continuing in our series. It's called Holy Reflections. Uh, The last several weeks we've been discussing God's design for singleness, sex, and relationships. And so it's going really well so far. The way I gauge that is that uh, people are saying that God by his Holy Spirit is changing the way they're thinking about these things. The word of God is bringing healing and help uh, and instruction to people. And so uh, that's the way I know God is at work among us. And so that's been the case thus far uh, in all that we've covered. And so We've covered uh, singleness by God's design. We've covered dating and, and courtship, the process of finding a spouse um, by God's design and, and for his glory. And now we're working on marriage. So uh, last week, we talked about the fact that if our lives and marriages are not built upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ and his word, then we will suffer the tragedy of seeing all that we try to build crumble and fall when difficulty comes. That's what the Word of God says about it, and I stick with the Word of God. Uh, The truth is, without a solid foundation, devastation is inevitable. That's what Jesus taught. If you've got a firm foundation planted upon Christ, then whatever you build upon that thing, when the winds and the rain, the difficulty of life comes, that that house is going to stand. But so many people spend so much energy building a beautiful cathedral on top of a sandy, crumbly, jacked-up foundation. Then the winds and the rains and the difficulty of life comes. It blows that thing down, and it is tragic. It's difficult to watch um, when you love those people, and it's it's definitely difficult to go through. So uh, we talked about that. We also discussed the fact that marriage is a covenant and not a contract. That's really super important. Uh, We also talked about the the point of marriage, right? So we asked, there's a lot of people in our culture asking, what's the point of marriage? Almost as if, why mess with it, right? Well, we asked, what is the point of marriage? But from a different angle, and, and the answer is, the point of marriage is ultimately to glorify God and reflect the beauty of covenant love to the world. And so if, if, The point of marriage is the same as the point of all of life for every human, which is to point to God's glory uh, and to reveal that to the world. It changes the way we think about things, right? It takes it off of a a self-focused paradigm, and it it makes me think, okay, is the next thing I'm about to say to my wife going to lead to God's glory? (laughs) Or is the way I'm about to treat her or serve her or not serve her or whatever it is, right? So questions get framed differently when we know the ultimate goal. Purpose and intention is super important. Motive matters, right? So... Uh, the ultimate uh, point of marriage is to glorify God and reflect the beauty of covenant love to the world. So our aim last week was to point to Christ as the foundation of marriage and to God's glory as the ultimate point of marriage. And so if, if we did that, hopefully the juices have been flowing, questions have been coming, so hopefully there's questions being asked uh, as we think through these things like, how is it then that we can reflect God's glory through the covenant of marriage? If the point of, of marriage is to glorify God and reflect the beauty of covenant love to the world, well, how are some specific ways we can do that? And maybe other questions like, what are some of the obstacles to joy-filled, God-honoring covenant marriage? Okay, so hopefully we're one, if we've bought into the premise that the point of marriage is not the pursuit of personal happiness, though if our marriage is covenantal and it is full of God's love, it will end up in happiness and joy, right? So we don't have to give that away in order to have our priorities correct. Uh, However, 
the, the truth is that um, there's going to be some obstacles. There's going to be some roadblocks. There's going to be things just because of the nature of the way the world is, the fact that sin exists, and that um, it exists in our lives, that those things are going to come up. There's going to be obstacles. So what are those obstacles? What are some ways we can overcome those? So I think the first thing that would be wise for us to admit as we think through these things is that for many people today, a wedding sounds like an amazing and magical event, but marriage is often seen as an encumbrance to joy and happiness. Do you see the distinction there? A lot of people think a wedding sounds like a really magical, fun time, uh, and a lot of people think then of marriage uh, as an encumbrance to joy and happiness, that, it, that marriage itself is going to be an obstacle to freedom or expression or real happiness and joy. That's not true. It doesn't have to be true. I, I guess the reality is it is true for some people, but that's just because we believe lies about a lot of things. So uh, the, the fact that we think about marriage, you know, ball and chain, that type of vernacular, it comes through in, in much of the way our culture depicts marriage in TV shows and movies. If you just think through, um, a lot of times it's, it's not shown as something super joyous and to be pursued, not real love-filled, most definitely, in most cases, not pointed to as something that could glorify God. Um, but it comes through in TV shows and movies, entertainment. It comes through in the way singers sing about it, and, and really even in the way I think sometimes we talk about it. Um, I, I heard a story recently of a couple named uh, Harold and Gladys, and they went to a state fair ever since, uh, ever since they were married, and they had been married 67 years. Okay, So they've been together a long time. Praise God for that. That's, that's an accomplishment in and of itself. Um, in the last 20 years or so, every time they went to the state fair, there was, there was a helicopter ride available, and it was 50 bucks to ride the helicopter. And so Gladys, ever since the helicopter showed up, Gladys would beg Harold every year to ride the helicopter. But he would always say, that looks fun, but $50 is $50, Gladys. So finally, when Gladys was 87, she told Harold, this may be the last year I make it to the fair. And this may be my last chance to ride that helicopter. And Harold replied, yeah, Gladys, but $50 is $50. The helicopter pilot happened to be standing close by, and he overheard their conversation. And he told them, I'll take you guys up. If you can ride the whole time without saying a word, the ride's going to be free. Okay? It, but if you shout or make a sound, then you're going to have to pay the 50 bucks. And so Harold and Gladys agreed, and they boarded the chopper. Uh, the pilot did every trick he knew because he was hoping this arrangement he made was just going to be another way to get a customer. He thought for sure he could get him to make a noise. So he did every trick he knew. He pushed that machine to its limits. But Harold and Gladys never made one sound. So when they landed, the pilot was super impressed. And he said, I can't believe you guys were quiet that whole time. And Gladys replied, well, I was going to say something when Harold was falling out. But $50 is $50. <laughs> now, that's funny. <laughs> that's funny. But it also kind of frames the sad way that marriage is viewed and even experienced by many. Uh, instead of being filled with adoration and selfless service, many marriages are adversarial and they're full of selfishness. Um, so what I want to do with you guys today is I want to humbly approach God's word together and see what he has to say to us on this matter, okay? So we're going to read 1 Peter 4, we're going to be in verse 7, and we're going to read down to verse 11 together, okay? 1 Peter 4, 7 
Here we go. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I say amen to that. Praise God for his word. Now, you might be thinking, uh, that set of verses doesn't even say marriage. And you would be right. I'm glad you were paying attention. Uh, the Bible does have many specific instructions on marriage, but what I want us to think through, and, and what I'm going to present to you tonight, is that when you boil them down, they are mostly just specific applications of what every Christian is called to do in regards to how we treat other people. Uh, much of the basic disciplines and reactions to the grace and goodness of God that should inform the way we relate to anybody, if, if we could even grab that, that minimum base level and, and relate that way to our spouses, uh, so much of what can be problematic in, in a marriage covenant can, can really be handled and be redeemed. So uh, the truth is our enemy, the devil, hates healthy marriages. Satan's pride and self-deception cause him to desire the glory that is only due our God and perfect Heavenly Father. Satan is aware that healthy, loving, covenant marriages among God's people are one of the clearest and most vibrant reflections of God's power and glory in the earth. Did you hear me on that? That's important. We need to understand that's true. Because Satan understands it. That's why, that's why he'll attack your marriage every chance he can get. Satan understands that Covenant marriages among God's people are one of the clearest and most vibrant reflections of God's power and glory in the earth. And so Satan does everything he can to wreak havoc on them. Now, I, some, I don't want some of you to check out on me. You might be thinking like, okay, it's supposed to be a marriage sermon. Dude's talking about Satan, you know, getting a little hyper-spiritual. I, I just want to commit to you this, this thought. I, I don't think it's hyper-spiritual for this reason. When, when so, many, so many marriage covenants, so many marriage relationships become kind of toxic and caustic because this, this word becomes true about them. They become adversarial, right? We get to this point where we believe the lie that one another is our enemy. And the Bible's very clear that that is not true in, in any sense because it says that our battle as Christians is not against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers, Right, that there are forces of darkness at work in the world. And so it's, it's not hyper-spiritual to call attention to those things and understand that those things are at work, and those things are at work against your marriage. And part of the reason that's important is, to, to use one of the, the silly examples that I tend to be able to um, pull off the top of my head, here's one. Um, let's say that you're walking through a park with somebody that you love, whether it's your spouse, whether it's a brother or sister or somebody else, and, and you guys are in a heated argument, um, you know, pick your subject, it doesn't matter. So you're in a heated argument over something, and it's, it's getting real bad, right? I mean, it's getting to, like, we're getting personal, we're, we're digging really hard on each other, really hurtful things are being said, the filters are, are you know, um, being lifted, and, and we're just, we're just kind of saying real, real mean and angry stuff. So you're walking through the park, and all of a sudden, 
out of the trees drop, you know, seven to eight ninjas, okay? So you're in the middle of this argument, you're walking through the park, and you guys have decided one another is your enemy, you're about to go fisticuffs because you're wrong, no, you're wrong, and eight ninjas bounce up out the tree. Now here's my question to you. Are we going to continue the argument? Or are we going to deal with the ninjas? All of a sudden, the whole paradigm has shifted because now we have a common enemy that has ninja stars and swords and other weird stuff, okay? And they want to hurt us. And so all of a sudden, this dumb argument we were having where we're getting real personal and mean with each other has very little importance because there's ninjas, okay? Now, it's not really the fact that there's ninjas, it's the fact that there's an enemy. We have a common enemy that wants to destroy us both. And this is what you need. So take my dumb example, apply it to your marriage and to spirituality, right? We have a common enemy. His name is Satan. He hates you, and he hates God, and he hates healthy marriages because he hates anything that brings glory to the God of the universe. And a healthy, covenantal, gospel-centered marriage reflects the beauty of God as powerfully for sure as anything else does. The Bible makes that clear. Ephesians 5 says so, okay? So, let's not get focused on each other. Let's never believe the lie that one another is the enemy. Whether it's somebody in the church family and there's an issue, whether it's in a, a marital covenant or in any relationship, or, or even other people that are being real nasty to you, the Bible says our battle's not against flesh and blood. So we should be, I mean, the call, surely we should be able to get to the place where we understand our spouse is not our enemy. God called, I mean, Jesus, he's always setting the bar way up high, right? Because he's like, even the person that's being real, real hateful to you, in whatever the context is, even if they're going so far as to persecute you, don't make your focus on them, that person as an enemy, but see behind the scenes there are forces of darkness and, and, and spiritual things at work. And so we wage war as Christians with, with spiritual weapons like prayer and grace and forgiveness and mercy, right? That's the way we fight. Amen. God's glory and our joy can be diminished whether a marriage whether a struggling marriage ends in divorce or if people stay together and are miserable. I want to make sure you know I understand that. However, because a marriage is a covenant like the one God made with us through Jesus, the best case scenario is always healing and reconciliation within the marriage when it is at all possible. That needs to be said. Satan and his cohorts would like nothing more than for people to become embittered and unwilling to walk a path of marital reconciliation because God is not only glorified when marriages are joy-filled and healthy. Get this. God is not only glorified when marriages are joy-filled and healthy. God is glorified and the gospel is exemplified when two people choose to extend love, grace, and mercy to each other and let the multitude of sin be covered and cleansed by the precious blood of Christ. Hear me in this. Not only when everything's hunky-dory and he just showed up with a bouquet of flowers is God being glorified in your marriage. Sometimes God is glorified in your marriage when you've been in the middle of a knockdown dragout, you've both been in sin, you've both been acting nasty, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes in and ministers truth to you. Somebody repents, somebody apologizes, grace flows in the midst of the thing, and reconciliation happens. Now, this, Paul addressed the next thought that can happen so, so what do we do? Do we get into sinful situations so that grace can abound? No, all right? Don't be picking fights with your spouse to the glory of God, okay? That's not how this works. I, I know some of you, okay? <laughs> so stop. That's not how this works. However, when, when, when we do get duped by temptation, when those situations do come and we do, we do fall prey uh, to, to those lies and we end up in those situations where we, we are adversarial and we are uh, at each other, 
um, God is glorified when, when, when by his Holy Spirit grace is, is ministered in those things and, and love and reconciliation wins out. And so it's not just when things are perfect. We know that's never really true. But even, it's not just really solid, healthy, joy-filled seasons where God receives glory by, your, the, 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 by the covenant of marriage and, and the life that you have with somebody. It's, it's also when, um, it's when you fight well. <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you battle according... Um, to the truth of the scriptures and according to the rules that should be applied within a covenant, which is, you know, we should believe some things off rip, right? Like, I love you. You love me. I'm for you. You're for me. We disagree right now, but if we keep those baseline things true, we don't get into that real ugly stuff, that real, that real vitriolic, hateful, um, adversarial position where uh, it doesn't bring glory to God and it brings us a lot of pain, okay? So I'm thankful that God is glorified in the gospel, exemplified when we extend love, grace, and mercy to each other. God is glorified in the gospels, exemplified when, when two people fight for their marriages rather than against each other. And uh, I'm thankful that's true. Uh, I, I really believe that it can be helpful for us um, to look at some common reasons why people abandon marriage covenants. Now, we need to say this, though, as a full disclaimer. There are rare circumstances where Adultery and abuse are present where divorce is tragically a viable option. God does hate divorce, but he loves desperately every single person that has suffered the deep pain and anguish of one. Did you hear that? It's real important before we move forward. God does hate divorce, but he desperately loves every single person that has had to suffer through the pain and anguish of one. Okay, so we need to make sure we keep that clear. Grace and forgiveness are available for every person no matter what their marital past looks like. But as is true with everything, confession and repentance are a necessary part of that process, okay? So make sure everything else that's said gets filtered through the grid of those truths, and don't, don't let it come to you as, as words of condemnation, because that's absolutely not what's being said here, okay? We, we are not bashing people that have suffered the tragedy of divorce. We are elevating the beauty of covenantal marriage and, and fighting for that, okay? So that's what we're doing. Uh, studies by different groups of psychologists and sociologists and even some divorce lawyers. I'm not sure why they do these things, but they do. <clears throat> In my research, it was like there's some psychologists that have some stuff, some sociologists, and then you've got divorce lawyers doing polls. I, maybe, some, I, maybe one of you can figure that out for me. But they have yielded fairly consistent results on the top five causes for divorce. Um, and so I want to look at these together and see if God's word speaks to these things. Okay, so f there's some variation, but if you look at enough things, you'll see a common thread of, of the, the most commonly given reasons for uh, folks ending up, ending, ending a marriage covenant, okay? So here, here's what some of those are. The first one and the most prevalent that people cited was a lack of commitment, a lack of commitment. In one study, 73% of couples said the main reason for dissolving their marriage was that one or both spouses became lazy and weren't willing to work out their problems. Get this, of that 73%, so if you have 100% of people, say you polled 100 people, 73 people said that lack of commitment, a, a, a sense of laziness by one or both, ended up being part of why their uh, marriage was dissolved. Six, so of that 73%, 62% of them said that they, they wished um, their ex-spouse would have, would have worked harder to save their marriage. So 62% of those people that said lack of commitment was a major issue, 
they said they wish their partner would have worked harder to try to save the marriage, okay? Here's the first thing that I see out of all that. There's a lot we can draw from it, but the first thing I see is that these people, and I think most of us tend to wish, the other person would have worked harder to save the marriage. The other person. I wish the other person would have worked harder. And that ends up being a lot of the focus. One of the most lethal poisons that kills relationships is the blame game. That is one of the quickest and most lethal poisons to kill love and intimacy, is to start blaming each other. I heard someone say once, um, a Bible teacher, if each person would agree that their own selfishness was the biggest problem in the marriage, most problems would be solved before they start. I'm going to let that sink in for a second. If most people would just set as a baseline of understanding, if they would say, okay, if I'm married, my selfishness is the number one issue in this marriage, is the number one reason why problems would happen. If we would start there and believe that and understand that it is true, how much less finger-pointing, how much less adversarial, ugly, fighting, um, misunderstanding, perception misalignments would happen if I started with the premise. Every single time, you know what it's like. Something happens, something said, there's an issue, there's a, there's a perspective misalignment, and then, and then that, that frustration begins. If, if, I'm, if I'm set in this belief by God's grace and by the truth of his word that my selfishness is a major issue here, that before I say anything to anybody about how I'm feeling, how upset I am, how violated I feel, how much I think you didn't think about me before you did said or whatever, before I do any of that, if I run how I'm feeling through the grid of this truth, my selfishness is a serious problem. How many times would I be able to deal with that between me and the Lord and not even have to go that next step and not ever turn into a fight? Right? If we would judge ourselves as we should, right? That's... Never mind. I was gonna I was gonna go off on the only God can judge me rant, but I'm I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna do it. All right. Here we go. Um, yeah. So that's that's just true. If if each person would agree that their own selfishness was the biggest problem in the marriage, most problems would be solved before they start. I believe that most problems would be solved before they start. Because you would deal with yourself. You would deal with your own motive. Why do I feel like I'm being slighted? Is, is that legit? Or do I have an unrealistic expectation? Am I looking to serve or be served, right? You run yourself through that grid, all of a sudden a whole lot of issues that become real big things didn't, didn't need to be, okay? Um, this lack of commitment that, that 73% of people polled in this certain study said was the main reason for dissolving their marriage, this lack of commitment becomes a non-issue when marriage is more than a pursuit of personal benefit by two people, okay? When God's glory is the foremost concern of our life and all of our relationships, and when we keep fervent in love as defined by King Jesus on the cross, our mind is not so prone to wander into selfish and destructive thought patterns. Did you catch that? The, the number one reason, you, you, could, you could pull that apart and you could, you could just... You could try to specifically analyze the details of absolutely every individual couple's situation and root out all these issues of lack of commitment. Or what we can do is what we've done for the bulk of this series, which is to point you back to this one simple truth. You are not your own. 
You exist primarily for the glory of the God that made you. And so if that great truth infiltrates the way you think about every one of your relationships and infiltrates the way that you deal with all of life, all of a sudden, much of the, of the details we could sit and analyze forever, and I've done that with people before, run around the mulberry bush, right, for four hours and, and we didn't solve anything because we just kept doing this, right? I mean, there was eyes in serious danger because of all the finger pointing happening. I mean, I should wear safety glasses to those meetings, right? We don't need to do that because really, if we could get people to believe this one thing, you are not your own. Your, your, your own personal set of, of needs and wants is not as, as important as you make it on an average day. If you would make your life about caring and serving other people the same way Jesus cared, loved, and served you, you'd be offended a lot less. There'd be a lot less issues that even got to the point of let's argue about it. If we would understand that we have a selfish bent that needs to be submitted to God's uh, discipline and to submit it to the truth of the word and to be handled... Um, Man, we could avoid a lot of issues. So the, the, the number, I'm, I'm just saying, if, if you live your life and you look at your marriage through the lens of its ultimate point is for God's glory, and you run the way you respond to and deal with your spouse through that grid, all of a sudden the lack of commitment thing becomes less of an issue because you're not going to have a lack of commitment. You are going to see that your covenant is, is deeper than just a commitment you made to that person, but that you stood with that person and made a covenant before God, and that that isn't even just about your happiness in your little nuclear family, but that ultimately God has redemptive purposes throughout all of time and all of the earth's history, and that your marriage plays a part one way or the other in reflecting God's glory to the world. And so when the stakes are raised, when we understand that we're part of something bigger than ourselves, when God's redemptive purposes get factored into everyday decisions and what we do when we open our mouths, all of a sudden we talk different. We think different. The, the meditations of our heart become different. When God's glory is our first and primary concern, I'm not saying you don't have desires. I'm not saying you don't have wants. And I'm not saying having Wants and desires is sinful, but those things need to be submitted to the highest and ultimate purpose of every human life, which should be to glorify the God that made them and to enjoy him forever. So if our marriage gets submitted to that, wow, just think about the way some conversations would go differently. Think about the way some actions would change. Because I'd ask myself, okay, bub, you're about to do this. Is this going to glorify God? Nope. Then I wouldn't do it. I know this is groundbreaking stuff. I mean, I, I expected there to, you know, just be jaws hitting the floor. But that's the problem, man. I think sometimes what we do, and, and unfortunately it's, it's, it's in the church as much as out of the church, everybody's hoping that somebody comes up with a new revelation, that they mine the scriptures, man. Let me... Hopefully somebody digs deep in the minor prophets and finds some scripture nobody saw before that's going to be the magic key to unlock what we've been missing as far as how to have happy, healthy marriages. I need that new book. I need, that, I need to go to that conference. And I'm, get the book, man. Get the book. Read the book. Praise God. Do it together. Go to the conference together. Praise God. But, but would you just understand that if, if they've got some new thing nobody's seen before and that's going to be the magic key that's going to solve everything for you, it's probably poppycock. Is that okay? I think in Britain, I, that would not be okay for me to say, but this is not Britain, so. 
And any British folks that listen to this podcast, I, I'm seriously sorry. I should, I should be more considerate of, um, <clears throat> you know, my language and, and how it's going to be perceived across the pond. So if I just cussed in British, uh, I'm, I'm seriously sorry. So anyways, <laughs> but, but the strength with which that word came out of my mouth, I mean it, man. Stop looking for the next conference, the next truth, or, or some deal that nobody's ever heard before. Let me tell you something. If you live your life for God's glory, if you live your life overcome by the same love that caused Jesus to allow himself to be nailed to the cross for you, let me help you with something. Your marriage will be happier. Your relationships will go better. You'll reflect to the world the glory and goodness of God. Your marriage covenant will not only be joyful for you, but it will be beneficial to the world around you. Because people will see something of the covenantal and beautiful service and love of God. And it'll spark in them a curiosity. And that's part of what our marriages should do. That's, Ephesians 5 tells us that, man. There's a mystery that happens in marriage. And it's the same as the mystery of, of what God has done in, in his beautiful covenant between Christ and the church. Okay? Sometimes we just got to get back down to the basics. And, and, and just really apply those. Like, really interweave those so deeply into the way that we think and act that it starts to really actually affect what we're doing. It's not just something that intellectually I've ascended to and say, yeah, okay, yeah, my life should be for the glory of God. How does that affect the way you talk to your wife, husbands, that your whole existence is for the glory of God? How does it affect the way you talk to your husband, wives, when all of your existence is simply and only for the glory of God, when that's your highest calling. Probably changes some things, if I was to guess. Okay, I put number two and three together because I think they, I think it's silly to pull them apart. They're pretty much the same thing. So number, two, number one was lack of commitment. Number two and three was either too much arguing, so conflict, or uh, selfishness and a lack of communication. Okay, so we have lack of commitment was the number one reason people cited for divorce. Number two and three, I put them together. Too much arguing, too much conflict, or selfishness and a lack of communication. Okay? We're talking about too much arguing, selfishness, and a lack of communication as the number two and three reason why people ended covenant marriages. Let me, I just want to read this to you again, and I absolutely am fully aware this is repetitive, and it's super on purpose, okay? I know, what, I know what I'm doing. I don't mean that in a cocky way. I'm just saying, don't think I forgot. I know I read these verses. I'm doing it again, and it's on purpose, okay? Verse 8, I believe these scriptures speak directly to the fact that people gave up hope over too much arguing and, and selfishness and, and, and a lack of communication, okay? Here's what the Bible, I believe, would say. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Do you know what that means? It's saying that each one of us is, is gifted by God that we should employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold, of the manifest grace of God. The fact that God has gifted us in such a way to serve one another, when we do that well, motivated by love, it literally speaks to the power and goodness of God. So be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. It makes visible us serving and loving one another according to the gifts that God has put in us. It actually, literally makes visible the grace of God to the world. Is that not exciting? That's exciting to me. Okay? 
Whoever speaks, here's important, what are we talking about? Arguing and communication issues. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Guys, I, I could have had five to six more points on communication skills and all this type of stuff, conflict resolution stuff. And I'm not saying don't research that. I'm not saying don't employ those tips. And I'm not saying don't have that knowledge. But if, if it's not motivated by the truth laid out here, that above all else we are keeping fervent in love, that above all else we are being hospitable to one another, that we actually care about the fact that God has built us and gifted us and he has called us to use those gifts to serve one another, both in the church context, in the world, and in our marriages. And when we do that, that it literally makes manifest or, or visible the grace of God People in you serving and loving your spouse are able to observe the grace of God in a visible way. I struggle to share my faith. Love your wife better. I struggle to share my faith. Love your husband better. Focus on that. It will actually and really in a true way. It'll, it'll, it'll make visible the grace of God to your kids, your family that's close enough to know, the friends that you invite into your life. Covenant based, gospel-centered, love-filled marriages preach the grace of God. And if, if we just did the things here we have in these few verses, and guys, this is, you know, there, there's some repetition intentionally throughout the New Testament. Certain things get hit time and again. I could go to almost any book in the New Testament and find a similar set of verses encouraging us towards these very things. High point, love one another. You know I can do that one. I got 15 verses for that, okay? So there's that. Be hospitable to one another. We got a bunch of those. Serve one another, okay? So if we're, if we're doing those things, it's a lot harder to get in an argument. <laughs> Stop serving me so much. <laughs> <It's>, I'm, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying that's impossible. Because <sighs> I know it's possible. But... Hopefully you feel real dumb about it real fast and repent, right? Okay, thank you. Somebody, somebody understands where I'm at on that. Okay, thank you. As long as I'm not by myself. Okay. Um, I mean, what, what room in these few verses is there left for selfishness? Is there any room? No. And, and this is just one set of verses that keeps hammering these same basic results that should happen, these basic Christian disciplines that should be interwoven into the way we deal with everybody, especially our spouses and our children and our church family, the people that we're close to, man. These things should, they should be woven into the way that all of our relationships happen. And, and so many of the common pitfalls the, the, the bitterness and the jealousy and the issues and, and the communication problems and the perception misalignments, man. If people would just assume the best in each other, man, we, if, if we could just get that part down at, at, the, at the marriage level and, and at, the, at the church family level and, 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 and you know, at, at, at your job, I mean, sometimes you might be wrong, man, but, but just go ahead and assume the best about people. You'll be happier. <laughs> You'll have more joy for sure. And sometimes just giving somebody the benefit of the doubt will convict them if they don't deserve it. Right? Proverbs says if you heap 
um, if, you, if you're kind and, and, and loving and gentle and peaceable to somebody, even if they have bad intentions, when you're good to them, when you're so good, you don't, it doesn't matter what they do, you're going to be good to them. It heaps burning coals on their head. Now, if, you, if your motive is to be nice to them because you want to heap burning coals on your head, you're still messing up, okay? Your motive needs to be to love them and be good to them because Jesus has loved you and been good to you, okay? And let God handle the burning coal heaping, all right? It's not your job. Amen. Let me, let me read you this quote. The finest art of communication is not learning how to express your thoughts. It is learning how to draw out the thoughts of another. The finest art of communication is not learning how to express your thoughts. It is learning how to draw out the thoughts of another. That was said by a guy named Ted Tripp. And I think that's deep and profound because most of us, when we think about communication, when we think about a strong communicator, what do we think of? Somebody talks good, right? If you're a strong communicator, someone that talks good. Well, I think what the Bible would say is if to be a strong communicator, you need to be somebody that listens good. I got a verse. Well, that was just a quote. I don't care about that. Okay, I got a verse for you. <laughs> Captain Bible, okay? I'm glad. I'm glad you want a verse. I'm glad. Be a noble Berean. Okay. Brother James said this, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Okay? So, um, man, God's so smart, isn't he? Because he gave you one mouth and two ears. So use them in proportion. And not as a manipulation tactic, right? Because you could get to the point where you're listening you, you could get to the point, you gotta, you got to check your motives, because you could be listening good so that you can do even better when you get a chance to open your mouth at undoing their arguments. Stop it. Listen to understand. Don't listen to make your argument better. Listen to try to actually get where they're coming from. That's what communication looks like. That's what gospel-centered, godly, love-filled, selfless communication looks like. I actually desperately want to get what you're saying. Say it to me again, because I'm still not understanding. It's that kind of stuff. A genuine desire down at the heart level to communicate. I want to get you so that we can actually talk about this thing, and I'm not just crafting my next argument or pretending to listen well or just I'm, I'm listening for holes in your logic. I don't care if their logic has holes. Try to, try to at least make sure you understand where, where they're coming from. That's what communication looks like. That's what godly communication looks like. Just because you're a good arguer or a good talker doesn't mean you're a good communicator. You're just a good talker. The Bible has a lot to say about talkers. Sometimes you need to close that mouth to the glory of God. No amen on that? <laughs> you missed it. All right, sweet. Okay, uh, so that was two and three. Too much arguing and a lack of communication. Number one was a lack of commitment. These are the, the, the top five reasons people said that um, they walked away from their marriage, okay? Number four was infidelity. 55% of divorces involve infidelity. Cheating, okay? Um, the, unilaterally, any, any science-based look at this comes up with the same results, that most of the time, one or both spouses feel a lack of some need being met, and then uh, they find that need, whether it's emotional or physical, to be met by another. That's normally the path where we end up with infidelity, most people don't wake up with a um, just, just straight-up sinful desire and a decision to say, you know what, I'm, 
I'm just going to cheat on my wife or cheat on my husband. It's, it's little foxes that spoil the vine. It's not having the armor of God um, on every day. It's not being careful. It's not paying attention to emotional connections with people that aren't your wife or husband um, that oftentimes then manifest into physical um, uh, connections as well. So um, this is normal. So when... One or both people have a feeling of a need not being met. Most of the time, it's accompanied by a lack of communication. So you'll see these kind of work together and weave in and out of each other. Most of the time, there's also a lack of communication when there is infidelity. Um, and, and the one that gets cheated on will often say that they were not even given a chance to address the issue. Most of the time, somebody finds out they're being cheated on, and then they find out there was an issue where the other person was feeling unloved or unsupported or, or whatever the thing was. Now, there's two parts of that, two things we need to deal with. First of all, the person feeling unloved or unsupported, it, it might be legitimate. Maybe that person's not doing a great job loving them or supporting them in, in that given time. Okay, that's, what, that's where communication comes in, right? It's okay to express that. So when we talk about having selfless motivations and, and, and all of that and being love-filled, that doesn't mean you're silent about every need you have or desire you have or, or whatever. We need to have open communication with our spouse, but again, it's, it's back to ultimate motives. If I'm feeling unsupported, unloved, or I'm having some need I feel like I have that's not met, and I'm bringing that to my wife, what is my motive? Am I ticked off when I come to her? Am I waiting until I'm angry enough to finally just say it in the middle of an argument and then it comes out in a hurtful way? Or am I, am I praying before I go, and am I coming her to express this need because I care desperately about this marriage covenant, I care about her, I care about the fact that we were joined together in a mysterious way, that the Bible says is, is, is so incredibly beautiful, it reflects the way Christ has been joined to his church. Do I care so much about that that I know that I need to go and communicate this to her because I have this feeling, I have this need, I can't shake it, I've taken it to the Lord, I've ran it through the grid of yes, I'm selfish, it's still there, so I've gone through all that. I need to go communicate with her, right? Instead of going and communicating to somebody else about it, Right? Especially some girl that's like, oh, she's so mean. That, that's, that's foolish, man. Proverbs talks all the time about, man, people, <laughs> when people get mixed up and stuff like that, it's, it's, like, it's, like a, it's like a fowl getting caught in a snare. It's like an animal getting caught in a trap. Just going along your merry way, and all of a sudden that thing springs. Don't do that. Don't be a fool. Communicate. Um, don't even let your mind go that way. Okay, um, there's more at stake here than just personal happiness, it, 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 and just the, the simple, just the simple covenantal love between two people should be enough to ward off this type of stuff. That our minds should not even get to the place where we can get close to that, because you know people, people in order to get there, they ha there has to be a, a semi-long process of of desensitizing themselves to the needs of, of that other person. They're, they have to get to the level to some degree where they don't care that they're going to crush that person, that God joined them together in, in covenantal love to. And so that, man, don't, don't, don't even entertain that. Don't start down that path. Don't even get close to it. Ask for God's help if you know that you've been having those type of thoughts. Confess. Walk in the light. Get help. Have people praying with you. Tell the truth. Don't wear a mask. Because you do that long enough, man, that fowler snare is going to snap on you, it's, and it's going to go bad. Okay? I love you. That's why I'm talking to you like this. You believe that? All right, good. It's the truth. 
<clears throat> okay, so infidelity was number four. Number five was getting married too young. And I, I couldn't delineate. I looked at a bunch of different studies, and, and so many of them had these two together or, or switched which one was at number five. I'm just including them both. So you could call this five and six, or I think probably to some degree they, they have an equal bearing. So uh, the fifth reason is getting married too young or financial issues, okay? Um, oh, sorry. This will be even funnier now. So in, in speaking of infidelity, okay? So I, I, I want to summarize some, something for you to think about, and, and it's going to sound familiar, okay? When God's glory is the foremost concern of our life and all our relationships, and we keep in fervent, if, and when we keep fervent in our love as defined by King Jesus on the cross, our mind is not so prone to wander into selfish and destructive thought patterns, okay? That's what I would say to you about infidelity, okay? Getting married too young and financial issues. I got something to say to you about it. It's going to sound familiar. When God's glory is the foremost concern of our life and all our relationships, and we keep fervent in our love as defined by King Jesus on the cross, our mind is not so prone to wander into selfish and destructive thought patterns. You see what I'm doing there? We could come up with 100 different answers, and there's probably some truth in those. But what I'm trying to show you, dear friends, is there's one answer. It's to make God's glory the highest concern of your life. And in the midst of that, you're going to obey his command to keep fervent in love. And that literally, walked out correctly, destroys every single one of these. And all the rest of the 25, that, as people kept polling the reasons why they would say, being, being in a place where your highest concern with all of your life and with all your relationships is to make sure that they reflect the goodness and beauty and glory of God, keeping fervent in love as a result of that deep conviction, you will not... <clears throat> be messing with infidelity. You will not be arguing over dumb stuff and living selfish and, and refusing to communicate. You will not suffer from a lack of commitment. Um, issues that come along with getting married too young and financial issues. Why do people say that? Well, a lot of people, when they say they're, they got married too young, right? So got married when they were 20, now they're 30, and, and they're, and they're going to leave each other. Most of the time they'll say things like, well, we were too immature, or now that we, you know, it's 10 years later, we've both grown, <clears throat> our interests have changed, you know, and we've, we've fallen out of love. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. You've, you've maybe fallen out of affection or infatuation or physical attraction. There's all kinds of things maybe you fell out of, but listen, man, love is not a hole in the sidewalk. You don't fall into it, and you don't fall out of it, Okay? Love is a choice. Love is an action. Love is exemplified most purely and beautifully. 1 John 3.16 says this, by looking at King Jesus on the cross. You want to know what love is, dear friend? Look at our perfect, sinless Savior hanging on the cross and just think about it forever. And you'll begin to scratch the surface of what love looks like. You don't fall out of that. When it comes to um, issues of finances, the reason why most people end up saying that's, that's an issue, sometimes it is just the pressure of difficult financial situation weighs so much that it, it begins to expose cracks that are already in the foundation and, and just kind of blows the whole thing to pieces. Sometimes that's the case, but a lot of times it's this idea that we, we, we didn't think, it, people will say we were too young or we have financial issues and the whole issue is we've now discovered we're not compatible. Okay, here's the thing. 
What do you, I mean, what do you even mean? So, okay, so say one's a saver and one's a spender. That happens, right? And a lot of the, a lot of the best and healthiest marriages I know, you've got one of each, okay? And so what people do is they end up buying the lie of Satan that, well, if, if they always want to save and they always want to spend, that we're just going to always have to argue about that. Or we could employ the wisdom of God in the situation and say, this is pretty sweet because if that's Gladys and Harold, guess what? Maybe, maybe one of them saves for a few years, so they have the 50 bucks, but they ride the helicopter so somebody doesn't end up falling out of it at the end and the other person will say nothing. Right? It's good to have a saver and a spender. Diversity is strength, not weakness. When we don't have an adversarial attitude, when we don't let Satan come in and convince us of these lies that because we think different about these certain things, that that means now we're not compatible. What do you mean? You're a stronger unit. I'm so thankful Natalie doesn't see everything like I see it. I get frustrated sometimes because Natalie doesn't see everything the way I see it. But when I'm thinking right, I'm so thankful that she doesn't think like me in everything. I need her to have that separate angle because you bring that together, guess what? We're stronger, we're more circumspect. And when we don't let that be a point of contention, but we, we, we thank God for it and we understand it for the gift that it is. Non-compatibility is a joke lie from the devil. Okay? It is. It's not about, covenant is much deeper than what you perceive compatibility to be. Well, she likes biking and I like walking. Okay, guys, switch off. Okay? Bike one night and walk the other. We're talking about covenant marriage here, okay? That's not a reason to start letting the, the seeds of the lies of the enemy get down into your heart and cause you to do something like abandon a covenant. A covenant. Super important word. <clears throat> Jesus said this, and I think it's very applicable. This is in John 15, uh, starting in verse 7. He says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Guys, here's what I'm getting at. He says, he doesn't say, if you, if you casually associate with me, and you casually associate with my words, here's what he says. If you abide in me, and if my words abide in you, that's, that's, a, that's a word like dwell. That's a word like constantly together, all the time. If you abide in me, this is Jesus, this is our king. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Here's what I'm saying. As it pertains to marriage and relationships and really all of life, if these words, these simple words, guys, we read, we read four verses today. If we would have these four verses written upon our heart, and if we believe them to such a degree that it affected the way that we enter into discussions and relationships and all that we do of just these four verses affected us and, and was a grid that we ran all of our communication through. If these words abided in us and if we abided in the presence of Jesus, the way that the gospel has made possible for us to do, how much more could our lives and could our marriages reflect the glory of God to the world? Guys, it's dark out there. There's a lot of misperception. There's a lot of deception in regards to what it looks like for two people to join their lives together in the covenant of marriage 
Most people, to some degree, believe it's going to be a bummer. They're going to have to give up freedom and joy, not understanding that absolutely, if it is the will of God for your life to be joined to another person in covenant marriage, that is where freedom and joy is going to be found for you because the will of God is where freedom and joy is found. If we would abide in him and his words would abide in us, these things would be it would be woven in so deeply. It would be a part of our ethos. It would, be the, just, it would be the way we go about things. Now, we need grace for that. We're not going to do it perfectly. But by God's help, we could do it better. And we could do it more often. <clears throat> what does it take? What does it take for us to be able to abide in Jesus and for his words to abide in us so that he says, my father is glorified when we bear fruit because he's abiding in us and we're abiding in his teachings and, 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 and God is glorified in that and we prove to be his disciples. There's something that's said when we live an authentic and, and, and reflective life that points to the goodness and the love of Christ. What, what does it take to do that? How is that even possible? It's only possible because of the truth of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the way that any of us could even have a hope of abiding in Christ or having his words abide in us. It is the gospel only that takes us from death to life, that takes us from the darkness that, that, that continually encroaches upon more and more of the landscape of our culture, and it takes us over into this beautiful kingdom of light and then sends us back out as missionaries, not dead, not to blend in, but to stand out for the glory of God. It's the gospel. The gospel is the good news. The good news makes no sense if you don't understand the bad news. We have to understand first that absolutely every single one of us, every single one of us is imperfect. Shouldn't be a big leap. I think we know that. God is perfect. And not perfect and perfect can't mix together. Light and dark can't mix. And so we had a problem. As soon as sin came on the scene, as soon as we chose to be our own God, as soon as we chose that what God said was not that important and we were going to do it our way, as soon as sin came in, separation happened. That's what spiritual death looks like, to be separated. So that, that John 15 where I read you that, that abiding in me, that, that's part of a larger discourse where Jesus talks about the fact that he's the vine and we're the branches. God is the very source of life. And when sin separates every, any human from that source of life, spiritual death is the result. And so that's where we find ourselves. That's where all of human, the human race found itself, separated from God, unable to do anything about it. And that's why God sent Jesus. Jesus came, took on flesh, lived a perfect life, and then stepped in and paid the price. He absorbed the wrath of God. God is loving and perfect, but God is just. That means absolutely every sin must be accounted for. He, he is equally just as he is loving, and so he can't just let it go. So somebody had to pay the price. And you know who did? God in Christ. He paid the price for, for our penalty, right? He paid the price that we should have had to pay. So Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, died in our place for our sins, and then the Bible says he rose from the grave. And this is where it starts to get real exciting. I mean, the whole thing's exciting, but when you, when you understand that he claimed the whole time he walked upon the earth, go on ahead, destroy this temple, it's going to be back in three days. And then three days later, the Bible says the power of God came and filled that tomb, and that 
Jesus, who was dead, was alive again. The stone rolled away. And here's, there's some real interesting things if you read your Bible. Ephesians 3.20 says that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, imagine the volume of glorious and magnificent power it took to raise Christ up from the dead. The same power that is at work, that was at work in the resurrection of Christ, is at work within you. And that is why there is a shred of hope for us to have gospel-centered, love-filled, beautiful marriages that reflect the glory of God. Because the same power of God that rose Christ up out of the grave is at work in us. We're going to need to appeal to that. We're going to need to fall back on that. We're going to need to trust deeply in it. We're going to need God's grace, his power, the anointing of his Holy Spirit, and his help every single day to choose to love each other and to make God's glory our highest concern and to let that fragment and, and be woven into every part of our life, the way we treat everybody, but especially the way we treat those that we've been bound to in covenant. I'm thankful for the truth of the gospel. The last thing I want to say to you is throughout this series, we've, from, from singleness to dating courtship to marriage, the big theme, the overall, the, 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 the thing that we keep pointing to over and over again because it is the truth is that all of these things, if they are thought of in terms of how they are tied to and reflect or don't reflect based on how we go about them, the glory of God, that, that getting that into our thinking, making that the grid we assess all that we do, if, if, if we understand that that's the purpose, it will change the way we go about these things, and it, it will matter deeply for gospel mission. So we, we've talked about that in the way that, the way that God's glory is affected in, in how we deal with singleness and sex and relationships, because, man... If there's, there's brokenness all over the place, but when it comes to these things, marriages, relationships, the dating scene, sexuality in our culture, man, there, I understand there's brokenness everywhere, but there's a lot of brokenness when it comes to these things. And so when God's people, by his grace, when they abide in him and his words abide in them and they do these things differently, it has an incredible potential to impact and to open up lanes of conversation. When people see the beauty of, of God's design, when they see people doing this the way God intended, and it's not riddled with so much brokenness and pain, it, it can open and soften their heart to the fact that, man, perhaps there's something to this. But I don't want to just reflect God's glory to the world when it comes to the way I think about marriage. I want to really be intentional in reflect, reflecting God's glory to my spouse. And I want you to think about this. You, husbands and wives, you have the potential to be one of the most vibrant reflections in your spouse's life of the glory of God. You have the potential, one way or the other, to either detract from or illuminate the goodness and glory of God in the way that you treat and deal with your spouse. Ephesians 5, other places, there's more specifics about God's wisdom and, and, and how you go about that. But listen, man, above all, keep fervent in your love one for the other. Humbly serve each other. Be hospitable. Speak to each other as if you're uttering the words of God. What, what, what does that mean? Before you speak, would God say this? Wow. Wow. 
my daily word output just got cut. And I say, praise God. Our covenants absolutely can and should be a reflection of God's amazing glory to the world. But friends, I want you to pray and ask for God's help to be a reflection of his goodness and glory to your spouse. Care about that. Make that a part of, make that a part of the grid you run through, how it is you're going to respond and react to them, how you're going to deal with them. Are they going to be encouraged towards Christ by the next thing I say? Are they going to be encouraged towards Christ by the next thing I do? Are they going to see the beauty of God at work in me by the way I respond to this situation? Amen. May we be a people who above all keep fervent in love for one another and for our Savior King. May we be a people willing to submit to the wisdom of Scripture and judge ourselves against its standard instead of the myriad of other possibilities. And may we be a people who excitedly pursue the beautiful honor of being holy reflections of God's goodness and glory to our spouses and to the world. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. We thank you for the timeless wisdom that applies to every situation. God, some of us were tempted to, to try to make it make our situation somehow spectacular or different or, or unable to be ministered to by these beautiful and deep truths. But God, I ask that you would come by your Holy Spirit and break through any of that. I ask that you would show us that we're not the special case. We're fervent love and servanthood and, and hospitality and selflessness, that, that we're not the one situation that, that the wounds are so deep that those things won't heal. I thank you, God, that the power of perfect God-motivated, gospel-informed love, that it can heal many wounds, that it can cover a multitude of sins. I thank you that perfect love casts out fear. So God, may we walk in that beautiful love. May we continually pursue a deeper understanding of what you mean when you call us to love our spouses, when you call us to love our children, when you call us to love our church family, when you call us to love the people around us, God, when you call us to love those that don't know you. What do you mean? How deep does that go? We need your help by the Holy Spirit. Lord, every single day we are tempted to do the exact opposite of the verses we read tonight. Every single day we are tempted to be about us and we are tempted, God, to think about what we want, to think about our wishes and our desires, to have very little consideration for the good or the needs of another. God, I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would come and you would just crush and vanquish those tendencies in us. In the same way that that golden calf, that idol at the bottom of Mount Sinai was crushed into dust, I ask God that you would crush every single idol of, of self-focus and selfishness that's in us. God, may we be gospel-centered, love-motivated people. May our marriages, may our relationships reflect your beauty to one another and to the world. God, may this not just be something that we heard and agreed with, but God, may it be something that literally is woven into the way that we operate in all that we do. God, we're not, we don't just want to agree with things intellectually. We're asking for the help of your Holy Spirit that it would go deeper than that, that it would affect change in us. God, may the truth of your word do its work in our hearts. We are submitted to that, and we're desperate for it. We want it. 
God, we want to abide in you, and we want your words to abide in us, and we want to obey you because we love you, and we do love one another, and we're asking for your help. And I thank you, you said, if we would ask anything according to your will, you would do it. And I don't have to wonder if us obeying your word is a part of your will. That's all we want, Lord. Please, help us obey you in this, that you may be glorified and that we may have great joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.